Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy, powered by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Dr. K. Royal and Paul Breitberg. A special offer just for me, or a mortgage denied, because what actually? Profiling and automated decision-making have quickly become very common, whether or not data protection law allows it or not. And of course, not all profiling is bad and not all automated decision-making has a detrimental effect. But we should talk about it more, especially now that the Court of Justice of the European Union has provided more detail on the responsibility for and explainability of automated decisions in the so-called Schufa case. So that and more in this week's episode. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Today, Paul and I are going to cover a particular topic. And today's topic is going to be online behavioral advertising, not, not online behavioral advertising, profiling. Behavioral profiling and automated decision-making. Exactly. <laughs> profiling and decision-making, but you know, they get it from targeted ads, but hey, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk about that. But first, the unexpected question. Ooh, what is your current cell phone wallpaper and why? I can show it to you. I think you can see it. This is a tree from the savannah in Kenya. Ooh. Oh, nice. With a blue and purple shade over it. And why? Because this is my default screenshot setting for do not disturb. Because while we while we record, my phone is set to do not disturb. And I like something nice and quiet. And iPhone lets you do then automatic bicolor mode. So it's purplish and bluish. Nice. So that's that's the default while we record. Typically during the workday, I have an image of the Katawiki building just to okay. make sure this is work. And in my spare time, I have random pictures show up. I have about nice. three dozen pictures and they rotate throughout the day. Nice. I am not near that sophisticated. I have two phones. Only because I really love Androids, and so I keep it, even though it's not my phone for calls anymore. I keep it for reading and playing games and social media and all that good stuff. The wallpaper on that is the picture of the costume for How to Train Your Dragon 2, where they had dragon armor made out. And I have been attempting to make that as a cosplay, but I have to take the time to to get in and make it. And I have a lot of it made, and I've posted it to social media where I've made the the helmet and some of the pieces of the armor, I just have to pull them all together and finish them. So that's one to keep me motivated to do that. On my work phone, and it's funny, my personal phone is now my work phone because some complications with the, the other. So I downloaded, you know, they had to impose all the work restrictions on my phone. And I just realized my wallpaper's not there. I had set oh. my wallpaper to be the QR code from LinkedIn. 
That way I don't have business cards. That way when I'm somewhere and someone wants to see it, I don't even have to share anything. I just show them the phone with the QR code and they can scan it and boom, we can be connected. It's not there anymore. I didn't realize that. So when I downloaded the corporate protocols to manage the phone, I lost the wallpaper. So I got to figure out how to get that uh, restarted on there. So there we go. Anyway, let's talk about online behavioral profiling and what that means for privacy, what it means for people, what can people do to impact this? Because it's becoming a bigger and bigger oop. Um, We had a conversation on LinkedIn that Jeff Jockish started talking about, and he does a lot of studies on data brokers and the data mm-hmm. they have. And we're not going to get in the topic of whether people should own their data or whether privacy rights should apply despite ownership. That, that's a whole different topic. But we are going to talk about how do people collect the data to make a profile of you and all the ramifications and the laws and the issues around that. Not all of them. We're only going to meet for 31 minutes. So there we go. So how do you feel about being scored? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if I take it from just a general individual perspective, what do I think if a, if a company ranks me really high or I get some sort of social score like they do in the People's Republic of China, I would feel competitive. If the score was known to me, like the social scoring, if it was known to me, I would be very competitive and try to do the things to get the high score because apparently Mm -hmm. the high score, the low score impacts what you can do in the country and it impacts job interviews and resources and whether or not you can travel and different things like that. So I would be competitive and want the high score. Otherwise, for other companies, not for country social media scoring, if a particular company was scoring me based on behavioral, I don't know how I'd feel. Would I care? Would I care if I'm scoring high on Amazon or scored low? I don't know if Amazon does scoring. I don't know. How, how should I feel? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you like to be judged? Do you like to be graded? I mean, I, I, I never liked exams to, to start with. And getting all these scores feels a little bit like taking a continuous exam. I mean. That you don't know what the questions are and you don't, you also, can't study but I mean, you can't prepare. For every single thing that you do nowadays, somebody asks you, oh, can you please review this? Right. And that starts to get annoying, to be honest. And I mean, I'm oh. not so much me being the one being reviewed, but every time you are in contact with customer service for anything, you Or even if get... you're on an app that you're just using it, it's not even customer service, it's just using the app or the site. So how would you rate us? How... Infernal chat boxes that pop exactly. up. Exactly. How did we do? Some some radio DJs here in the Netherlands were also a little fed up with that. So earlier this week during the, the morning show, they actually asked the questions to each other's partners. How would you rate your partner? And that was pretty funny. Oh, so they had this boy. whole review form. Why did you purchase this partner? Are uh, the implementation issues? And uh, if uh, possible, would you uh, recommend to purchase this partner again? Right. But then about your love relation. It was actually it was actually funny. It is. And I'll say that this also builds into something in the privacy class I was discussing last night. We discussed this a little bit as well, is phenotyping. They are now using your online behavior and activities. How long are you online? What sites do you go to? What activities do you engage in? Are you gaming for 10 hours a day? They're using it as a phenotyping, which is, you know, observable 
the official definition, a set of observable char- observable characteristics or traits of an organism. Uh, it covers their morphology, development processes, biochemical and physiological properties, behavior, and products of behavior. So now they're adding your online behavior into the phenotyping. And so that that can be whether it's health-related or others, but now it's it's more formal. You know, this is this is an official type of research on organisms is your online activity and behavior. So that is a little different from the profiling, but it essentially is. It's studying this. This is a, a major part of our lives now. So how do you go into and how do you treat the behavioral profiling and who's profiling you? Um, well, every- I mean, let's, let's first make the distinction between profiling and profiling. Yes. Because there are, there are different kinds. And, and for me, the default is, of course, to go back to GDPR and profiling occurs twice. You have it in, in Article 4 in the definitions and you have it in Article 22 when it's profiling in the light of automated decision making with a significant effect. Yes. When you look at the, 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 the profiling fair and square, that is mainly the slicing and dicing of data which typically should be fine. When you just look at a data set and try to draw analytics from it to, I don't know, improve your product or to improve your customer service or to prioritize complaints or whatsoever, that is the profiling in a way or even creating marketing segmentations. That is all fine. That's profiling. It is a data processing operation, obviously, but this is not data processing with, I would say, a significant effect. Yes, yes, agreed. And all of the U.S. laws that have um, passed the omnibus privacy laws, which I think there are 15 now, applies to the companies that are subject to the laws, and you have the right to opt out of, one, automated decision-making. And yes, decisions do come from the profiling. And you have the right to opt out of profiling. Being not just being tracked, but you have the right to opt out of profiling and targeted advertising. Companies aren't very good at this now. They're trying to bring back things like the global privacy control, which, if y'all remember, the do not track more than a few years ago, not successful. So they're trying to say that companies have to honor any browser setting that consumers set. Now, here's the thing you browse on your phone, you browse on your, your tablets, you browse on your laptops. Do you have it syncing in the browser? So a browser setting, not necessarily a computer setting, they have to be able to honor that. But here's the thing. What if your setting is directly opposite something you've opted into, like loyalty cards or loyalty points? That's the Mm -hmm. biggest concern that seems to come up. The company in some states, it's default to the company has the right to override it or default to the settings override it and the company has the ability to reach out to you to see which one you want to do. How does that work in practice? You know, it's really interesting. You're, you're opting out of being targeted or profiled or your behavior tracked while you're shopping on a site. And I can tell you, here's an example of one. I get points on my American card for shopping. And if they have an arrangement with the company, every website I go to pops up and says, oh, you can have five times points pop shopping on Amazon. Activate now. What if I had a global privacy control setting that I didn't want to be tracked? Then that wouldn't pop up. No. Maybe I want my American extra five point five times shopping points. 
Well, then you should make an effort and go into the settings of the website and switch them on manually. Right. And the average consumer isn't usually aware of these things, much less how to do them. How do you go into your browsers? How do you set a global privacy control? But then you have the problem on the company side of, oh, goodness, the laws say we have to do this by X date. And some of those dates are coming up pretty quick. How do I do it? Mm-hmm. And we've already seen enforcement actions out of California about companies not honoring that, even though they know that it's a nascent technology that's not really active yet. So we're running into a complication of the laws conflicting with technological capability and not just the technological capability of the companies to honor the GPC, because that's one issue, but the technological capability of the GPC actually working. Yeah, and then you also get to, to, to data hoarding, data collection. You see more and more supermarkets, for example, that say, well, you only get our promotions if you also have our loyalty card where we can right. collect your data. Loyalty cards are evil, I'm just saying. Well, I mean, is, a is, lot of is, data. is that fair processing? Because there is a lot of data that you then need to provide in order to get your discount. Again, it's pay or okay. Yeah. Are these, and I'm curious to see whether those kind of examples will actually also be included yeah. in the opinion that we'll get from the EDPB. So not just social media, but also these kind of payments. Right. Well, and then you have to take into consideration what if the profiling has the wrong information. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the profiling and the data brokers that, you know, help the companies create the profiling and they, they go into that. They're also collecting data from things like the mother of all breaches that has 26 billion records in it. So they're trying to connect the identifiers in the records to get more information from you. And the information may simply be that there was a breach that compromised your username and password at LinkedIn. Maybe it doesn't have all your LinkedIn information, but now they know that you're a LinkedIn customer. And there is information they can publicly scrape off LinkedIn, whether they should or not, they can. And you don't know if they've done that or not, because these are data brokers that don't tell you what they have, even though by law, they should, they don't. So what if... No, because they tell you that they cannot find you because you are the 15,000 attributes that they know about you are not specific enough to single you out of that database. Right, but they can sell it to a company. They can't put your name and address on it, so it's fine, and they don't know who you are. Well, I'm sorry, if you know 15,000 things about me, that's probably at least 7,000 more than I know about myself. Exactly. I doubt if I could list 2,000 things. We should probably have a competition one day for people for a month. Oh, I'm pretty sure that 2,000, I'm sure I can if you you take the time. But 15,000, hell no. But if you know 15,000 things about me, then I'm pretty sure that you also are able to find my name. Yeah, and could pick you out of a crowd. And in any case, tell me what information you have about me and where it's coming from. And again, the data might be commingled. Yeah, I mean, you are K-Royal from North Carolina. That's fairly easy. It's pretty sure that you are the only K-Royal in North Carolina, just like I am the only Paul Breitbart in The Hague, the Netherlands. Right. But if you are called John Johnson and you live in New York. Bigger issue. Who says that all the information about John Johnson in New York relates to you? Could be to the five or six other John Johnsons in New York. Well, and I'll share that one of the reasons that we moved here, and it's South Carolina, but that's okay. I'd rather be in North Carolina. 
one of the reasons. I thought you wanted to be in the South. No, I don't want to be in the South. I don't want to be anywhere where they say y'all naturally. That was my one rule. And look at me. I'm in South Carolina. Anyway, it's a beautiful area here. Don't get me wrong, people. I just don't want to live in the South. I fought for 30 years to get out. But one of the reasons my daughter moved here is because a lot of her childhood was spent here because her father uh, lived here with his second wife. They're divorced now, so I, I don't know how we do this ex-stepmother thing, but it's, she's part of the family. Her name, her middle name is Kay. Her last name is Royal. <laughs> there is a big possibility that records for, and I'll let me give, make up a name, Margaret. Margaret K. Royal is confused with K. Royal. And this is why I actually dropped my middle name is because now with all the prevalent online records, people were confusing K. Marie Royal as Marie Royal. <laughs> and I, to try to correct the records to it's really me, it's K. Royal. Well, no, it says Marie Royal. So I dropped the middle name deliberately. And yes, it's been decades and I've never told my mom. But that's one thing. I have records in various names. And when I go to buy a house, they print out all those names. And I have to go through and say, no, I was never this person. I was never this person. I was never this person. It's an error. It's me. But they had my name wrong because of my name. But what if it's co-mingled? With, what, if, what if Margaret K. Royal's records are co-mingled with my records because someone tied us together for something in South Carolina? Now I have all of her shopping traits and online behavior associated with my profile. You can't, one, to know that it's there, or two, unseparate them. It's absolutely horrible effort to even try to go through on a very simple thing, like a medical record yeah. that gets co-mingled because someone used your name and your insurance card and went and got treatment for something. And now it's on your medical record and your profile, and maybe it's available to potential employers to do it because it's a profile that have it. And you don't know to be able, and then two, to be able to prove, how do you prove to a facility that that wasn't you when they have documentation that it was you? Data hygiene. Yes, it's very... It's very difficult. So your profiles could be wrong. Now, my co-professor, Professor Gary Marchant, always says he would rather be shown advertisements and directed to sites that are tailored for him based on his online profile. No, I don't want that. No, I'm perfectly <laughs> happy being shown generic ads. Well, I'm also not happy being shown generic ads. They are still annoying as hell, but I take them any day <laughs> over the personalized ones. <laughs> well, and at one company I worked at, we got a complaint from a gentleman that said he kept opting out of all of our advertisements and cookies and tracker. And then he would write me and say he was still being shown the ad on social media. I'm like, you're being opted out of targeted advertisement. We're not targeting you. These are ads we're buying like a billboard. You can't opt out of those. They're just there. So if we're buying ads on social media to show to the general public, you're one of the general public. So you have to understand that there's there's that issue. Well, maybe you're not being shown the ad based on profiling. Maybe it's just general advertising and the person is buying a ton of ads. That is a, that is certainly a possibility. But I mean, if you indeed it is important that the profile that companies have about you is correct, especially if consequences are given to that profile. Yeah. Um, Significant legal consequences exactly. is what they're having. Yeah, the significant effect or legal effect 
in Article 22 of, of the GDPR, similar legislation around the world. And in the U.S. states, by the way, they're defining it. And in the U.S. states, absolutely. And in December, on December 7, the Court of Justice of the European Union, for the first time, actually ruled on this very specific topic. It's the so-called Shufa ruling. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard about it, have read it maybe, but this is about credit rating. And this was actually a guy from Germany who was denied a loan. Schufa is the leading German credit rating agency, holds information about some 70 million people. So this is, this is a big player. And the question, well, one of the questions before the court was whether it was the lending organization or the credit rating agency who was doing the automated decision-making, the profiling that led to the right. credit being denied. And the court here said, well, it was actually Shufa, so the credit rating agency that is responsible for the automated decision-making. So they are the ones that yep. also need to meet the GDPR requirements under Article 20 um, to actually make sure that proper safeguards are in place, that there is a proper legal basis, and for loans in general, that there is a legal basis like that. But Shufa played the determining role in this automated decision-making. Also, decision was then interpreted quite broadly because just the output yes. from the system, computer says no, is already seen as part of a decision, even though the final decision on whether or not to, to, to give the loan was for the for the bank, but based solely in this case on the uh, recommendation from Shufa. And also Shufa knows much better what information they hold and why they come to that decision, the credit rating agency, right. because they have the data on the basis of which that decision is made. So also for things as a right of access and a right, right. of correction and a right of deletion, you need to be with the intermediary and not with, with the bank. And Exactly. And and to reinforce that, this is a topic Paul and I have talked before about a lot of the privacy decisions are being put in the hands of the consumers, and the consumers are the ones that know the least about what mm -hmm. companies are doing with their data. And so it, the burden really needs to be on the entity that has the information. Yeah. So there needs to be legal basis. And in this case, that could have been, for example, the contract where the the individual said, hey, I want a loan. And as part of the, contra of the contract to get the loan or the pre-contractual phase is, is part of all of that, you would go through the credit scoring. I think that is still fairly acceptable, but then that decision needs to be transparent and ideally just have some human intervention, human explanation to also make sure that yeah. as an individual, you can understand why you are not suitable for a loan. What is the reason right. that you will not get it? and why you have a low, a low credit score for whatever reason. And again, the significant legal impact seems to be disproportionate to poor people, to those who are not in the upper echelon. Yeah, I think that, that's easier to say from the U.S. perspective because you have much more experience with credit rating, credit rating agencies and, and credit statuses and things like that at least than I have here in the Netherlands. Well, and did you know that here in the U.S., pretty much every service you have, whether it's a credit card or a bank account or whatever, will now do free monitoring of your credit score. Now, it's not the exact same thing that the credit agencies do, but it's supposed to be similar. Some of them are a, I don't know, a 400 to 800 scale. Some of them are a, a 300 to 700 scale, different scales that are used. They tell you what they base it on. 
but I can go to all of my credit cards and click on what's my score today. Not to mention companies like Credit Karma or Nerd Wallet also offer tracking apps that will track your credit score. So I, again, as we talked in the beginning, I'm competitive. I look at my score and I'm like, ooh, what can I do to improve my score? And it tells me you need to pay down this balance or you need to do this or you need to do that and everything like that. And I'm just sitting here with a blank face and I have no idea what this would look like and what kind of scores and how high or how low they should be because this is not something that exists in the Netherlands and I don't believe it exists anywhere in the European Union yeah. in that level of granularity. Not Nobody has it at the level that we have here. So it's not something that people are accustomed to. But I will also say the factors that go into it are also things that certain employers will look at and take into account when offering you a job. For example, if you want a job with the government, especially handling certain information, FBI, CIA, they're going to do mm -hmm. a deep dig into your background. And one of the things that they look for is, are you late on your income tax reports? What is your credit score? Have you missed payments? Do you have enormous debt for something? Do you like to gamble? Do you have lots of cars? Because any negative factors, any burdens for you or your family mm -hmm. can be used against you to yeah. convince you to turn against the state. They would start with something small. Oh, it can corrupt you. Yeah. Your mother needs a particular type treatment and you can't afford it. We'll give you $5,000 to go get your mother that treatment. If you just give us this little, very little innocuous file that doesn't really mean anything, mm -hmm. they just want something little to get you started with. And then they'll build up that little until they've got you so far and they found you're basically a secret. No, I mean, that, that part I'm familiar with because while I was still with the Dutch Data Protection Authority, I was also part of the supervisory teams for the terrorist finance trackings program, right? which is all classified information. So that meant that I had to be screened by our security services to be approved to access state secrets because that's basically what it was. I would approved. Well, I was approved, but it took it was a serious screening because it needed to be at a certain level because of you friendly Americans requiring that. But that meant, I think I filled out a 27-page questionnaire where I also had to list every single country in the world where I had ever been, ever traveled. Ever traveled? I had no idea. Well, indeed, that, that took a long time to come up with that list, but also tell about all of your closest friends, indeed, financial situation, many other things. Yeah. Then you need to include a few references and also identify everybody who has a key to your house because they may interview those people as well. And then oh goodness, they came to my house for a three and a half hour interview. Three and a half hours. Wow. Well, then wow. you really have the feeling that now, they know every single thing about you. Well, and for to pass the bar exam or to be admitted to the bars here in the United States, each state does a character and fitness exam. And Arizona is one of the most stringent character fitnesses that you can go through. Uh, when they ask you to turn in the filings for every court case you have ever been involved in. They mean including family court. So if you've gone through a nasty divorce or a nasty child custody or child, uh, what do you call it, child support payments or anything, you have to turn in everything. My entire filing was about six inches deep. Wow. And then that's assuming that you have retained everything. Right, right. But when you've been through two nasty divorces based on domestic violence and order of protections, you get profiled. Oh, yeah. 
I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you get profiled. And I used to think it would stop me from running from politics because someone could bring my background up. Now nobody. No, I mean, if that's the worst thing that happened to you. (laughs) Right. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Okay, you are about 40 years too young to become president. (laughs) Right. uh, Exactly. I I need to be a little bit older. But hey, if anybody knows how I can get involved in politics and get some money (laughs) and run for something here, please let me know. Actually. One of the more prominent politicians in the U.S. right now is Jamie Raskin because he was leading the uh, congressional hearings. And I actually worked with him in setting up programs for law students to go into schools, Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Program, to go into schools to help teach civil law to high school students. It was fantastic. And I worked with him for years in setting that up at the school that I worked at, at the Arizona State University Law School. So it was cool. Regardless, side note, squirrel, but we're coming to the end of the presentation. Anyway, we're trying very hard to stick within the 30 minute mark for y'all. This is a very complicated topic. There are a lot of laws that apply in the data protection and privacy realm, but there are a lot of nuances that certain companies aren't regulated and the enormous amount of data that they can compile about someone online. As Paul was saying, 15,000 data elements, 50,000 data elements as well. I've heard that that also, especially given social media. So it is something that is it can have serious consequences for someone depending on the context in which it's used. It's something that the average consumer has zero insight into as to where to go to even find this information. Jeff Jockish keeps a a database of data brokers and different things like that. You can't get information out of them. It's near impossible. And you have to give them more information about you than what they might have in order to go through an identity verification process so they know who you are and then they don't give you the data because they don't have it connected. I call BS. No, I agree. I agree there. And and maybe just before we, we wrap up, as a company, if you are the DPO of a company that is involved in mm-hmm. credit rating or fraud assessments that are automated or any of those. Something that has significant legal impact. Yeah, on make someone. sure you are as transparent about it as possible. And obviously you will not describe your full fraud algorithm on your website because then you also tell people, hey, this is how you can avoid it or circumvent it. But you do need to be transparent about it and you do need to give people the possibility yeah. to understand why a certain decision was made and put a human in the mix exactly put a human in the mix that also helps you to avoid being fully subject to article 22 of the gdpr because then it's not solely based on automated decision making but then also the human should have a meaningful impact in the in the whole decision yeah and and one of the most common one that happens is applying for a job Someone goes in, you have the application set up, you want 10 years of experience in privacy, and someone says no, and you automatically kick them out of the process because they said no to 10 years. They've only got nine years. They were being abundantly you know, honest, and you kick them out. Anybody that you automatically kick out of a process, you should have a human in the mix. Now, I understand maybe you're a company that processes 100,000 mm-hmm. applications and you can't, but have a way of adding some protections to that. Or doing a privacy impact assessment on why you would rely on the automated decision to kick them out. So as long as you do your assessments, you're transparent about it, you do your best to put a person in the mix or mitigate the damage that it might be, yep. 
then then you're trying to to mitigate Absolutely. the damage. And on that note, we'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our episodes, please share with your friends and family and colleagues. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. You will find Kay on social media as Heart of Privacy and myself as Girl Paul B. And Kay is trying to make me laugh and it just doesn't work and she just cracks up herself. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>